Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to live my life, putting purpose over profit. Too many fallen soldiers, too many slain prophets. Eyes on the prize, yeah, I gotta watch it. Agents amongst us, get your hand out my pocket. I'm sick with the pet. Brothers and sisters are sick in the pet. Oppressed by the man, attacked by the clan. America's plan, depression sets in. People becoming so hopeless. Said we can't breathe, they still choke us. They put the body cam on, it's either turn off or out of focus. Yeah, another death, another life. They pull the trigger, no thinking twice. Cops be wildin', the killing youth. The new Jim Crow, a different noose. It's the beast, it's the beast, mark of the beast. Cease and desist, increase the peace. Move in silence, don't make a sound. But when they come, stand your ground. R.I.P. to all the martyrs. Say your prayer, Heavenly Father. Black lives matter, black lives matter. All right, guys, we are back for another live episode of The Creative Gourd. I'm your host, Josh Waring, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Professor Israel. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Good, brother. All is well. Good to see you. Likewise. And we have a very special guest all the way from Manchester, England. Mr. Aaron United, all the way from Manchester, England, who is a wonderful content creator and just recently got over 4,000 view, uh, excuse me, subscribers. So congrats to you, sir. And Thank you very much. I, what I really appreciate, appreciate about Aaron is that he's not one dimensional. So he can also sing, he can rap, and he's also multilingual. So I think he is one of the best new content creators on YouTube. So everyone, you should give him a follow. His link is in the description. Thank you for having me, Josh. Mikhail, nice to meet you too, finally. Um, happy to be on here and can't wait to start the discussions with you guys. How are you doing? Doing well, man. I'm, 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 it's a privilege and honor to be here with you, have a conversation with you. I've heard such great things about you, um, from Josh. Um, so I'm, I'm great. Uh, I'm looking forward to a great conversation and, uh, you know, really getting your perspective, particularly one that I don't often hear too much. Definitely. Um, before we get into this, just from my perspective, and I'm just curious to know, like, what is the climate over there? Because obviously we're living here in the UK and the only things that we see is on social media. We see it on the news and we see all sorts of things, you know, some are more, you know, cruel than others. And it's, it's sometimes the things that we see personally for me, it hurts, you know, but what's the climate like over there? Hmm. Good question. Um, I would say from what I see, um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of different camps. So there are some folks who are still like have their, 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 their foot on the gas pedal, trying to make sure that we continue to ride out for all the social injustice and things that are happening right now. They're not getting distracted. Um, they might understand that the NBA is supposed to be coming back and all this other stuff, um, but their eyes are still focused on the prize and they're still trying to make strides towards um, equality, um, making sure that we can make our demands for equity, um, reform, et cetera. There are other folks who really don't care about anything. Um, that means they don't care about coronavirus. They don't care about um, these protests. In fact, they think that wearing a mask is an inconvenience and unnecessary. And they also think that these social justice rallies, protests are inconvenient, um, disrespectful, um, wow. Ill, Ill, Ill-natured, unwarranted. 
Um, so I think there's so, so, and you have people who are on, who span the gamut. So you have some folks who are on one side of the extreme and folks on the other side of the stream. You have folks in between some folks who are moderate. Um, so to, I think it depends on the neighborhoods too. Um, you know, even, even where I am in Philadelphia, you can be in one particular neighborhood and then you go to a different neighborhood and it's a totally different vibe. Um, and it depends on pretty much the demographic of the neighborhood um, and demographic, not only across racial lines, but also across class lines. Um, mm -hmm. So you might see some places that are opening up more so because they have the opportunity to spend money because they have money. They didn't really lose money. Um, and you also see some folks who are out and jogging. They don't have the mask on. They're not social distancing. In fact, there was a situation that just happened here in Philadelphia um, that my mother-in-law sent us something about um, a black guy who was walking through Old City in Philadelphia. And he was shouting a, shouting a number of folks saying, make sure you social distance at a restaurant because they weren't. Um, they were making sure like every, they was acting like everything was normal. Right. Um, yeah. And then this white guy, guy who was the owner of the, of the institution, I think it's called Infusion Bar and Lounge or something like that, um, pulled out a gun on him. And it's like, uh, no, get away from here. Uh, so you have all these situations where um, folks are losing their mind. Um, mm -hmm. They were already crazy, but now they're losing their mind. Um, and some folks just really are trying to take it one day at a time. So I would say that's what the climate is. And, and nationally, at the federal level, it's just been a joke since 2016. Yeah, I can imagine. That, that was it for me. I just wanted to know like what the climate is over there, because obviously the only thing that we the, the only things that we we do see are digital. So we don't really we can't really feel what it's like like you guys over there. So that's just hmm. what I wanted to know. Absolutely. And that's a wonderful segue question, because now we're going to give our, our audience a bit of, let's say, uh, how the media portrays what's going on over there, then we can actually hear from from Aaron. But this is a clip from BBC News. So thank you, BBC News. Well, tens of thousands of people took part in the demonstrations over the weekend as part of the Black Lives Matter campaign. Despite government warnings of the health risks of being in a large group during the pandemic, many were determined to take part in marches, lots of them for the first time. Our community affairs correspondent, Rihanna Croxford, has been speaking to some of those who took to the streets and asked what they wanted to see happening next. It's been two weeks of taking to the streets. Two weeks since the horrific death of George Floyd unleashed a surge of feeling on our own doorstep. That could have been my brother or uncle or dad. And it shouldn't happen to anyone. More or less, it keep happening to my people. For some, marching for the first time, this feels like a moment in history. I was kind of hesitant to do it. But, you know, as you grow older, you start to understand things a bit better and you understand that if you manage to be part of the change now, it can benefit those people in the future. But the protests have been criticised for a lack of social distancing. We can't just, like, sit back and then just wait and let the police keep, you know, killing black people. We can't let the brutality keep going on. We can't let the injustices go on for several months until it's convenient for us to go back out there. Their frustration, their passion is visible. But till now, their demands haven't been as clear. We want equality. We want the same opportunities as everyone else. Um, I've seen a lot of, you know, big companies coming out with posts like, you know, Black Lives Matter, we, we support the movement. But then when I go on your website and I look at the board members, nobody looks like me. I go a bit, you know, further down. Nobody, still nobody looks like me. And when I walk into a big company or any company, the only person that seems to look like me are the ones cleaning. So if I could bring in one policy change, it would be to 
change the curriculum. It would be to bring more diversity to the curriculum. It's just important for us to be able to to have some form of literature to be able to relate to um, to us as black people. The boxer Anthony Joshua and actor John Boyega are some of the familiar faces who have joined Aaron, AJ and Isabel at the protests, but even more have backed their cause from afar. There's something like 500 players in the, in the Premier League um, and only, you know, further that, further them are, you know, are black um, and we have no representation of us in, you know, in the hierarchy. It's time that we need to know, have conversations to, to be able to spark debates and not just debates, because um, we've done a lot of talking to actually start, you know, implementing change. And tonight, the Prime Minister said he heard and understood their concerns. You know, there's a saying, action speak louder than words, so we just need to see some action. I'll say, here's your chance to, to not let us down anymore. And they won't stop till that happens. Rihanna Croxford, BBC News. So, yes, Aaron, in your own words, what would you say the climate is in England and from how you can engage? Obviously, you can't travel as much because of the pandemic, but mm-hmm. perhaps Europe as a whole. Um, I think the climate over here is, uh, I think in certain areas, it's died down a little bit more than in, in other areas. But here in the UK, I, I feel like it's, it's still much of a topic, um, obviously, with all three of us, I suppose, being big sports fans, still there's still a big conversation going on um, over here. I think before every match, um, before actual kickoff, the players, all the players on the pitch, kneel for like two, three seconds, and then you know the game starts. So there is really a big, big conversation surrounding um, you know the the social injustice, um, the the systems of the way you know the way people are recruiting um, are changing. Uh, you know, the Premier League, which is, you know, the, the highest uh, competition of football here in, in, in the UK, are restructuring the way they are hiring, you know, black people and other people from ethnic minorities. So we are seeing to start some, uh, we are starting to see some change because, because before there was a lot of lip service. It was always, yes, we understand. Yes, we are hearing you. We are listening to you. But six months after that, we never saw anything. But now I think they are really, truly realising that change needs to happen. Um, there was a report that came out not too long ago about black coaches in, in football because, you know, compared to the US, here in the UK, that's something you just don't see. I think in my whole life that I've been watching sports here in Europe, I can count on one hand, one hand sorry, how many black coaches I've seen, which is something completely different in the US. I think you guys can name me a lot of black coaches that you've seen in the NBA and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? And when you do see black coaches, you know, uh, um, at the at the at the head, sorry, of, of a football team, they don't really last long. Even when they do well, there was a black coach here who um, used to coach a team called West Brom, and he, his name is Darren Moore, and he was really doing well. Took his uh, his team in a very fair position. Uh, you know, if I had to compare it to the NBA, I would say. He took his team to the playoffs and it was a team that nobody thought would make the playoffs. Took his team to the playoffs. All of a sudden, one morning, we all wake up and we hear Darren Moore has been sacked. Why? Until this day, nobody knows. And then he's been replaced with a white manager, with all due respect, with a white manager who then, ironically, started doing bad. Do you see what I mean? So there, there was a lot of injustice going on 
regarding the, the, the coaching, um, the black coaches that are just not getting the same opportunities. You know, ex-professional players, ex-white professional players who, with their first job, immediately get the highest job possible. But then ex-black professional footballers who maybe won more titles than the ex-white professional footballers will get some crappy job in the subdivisions and have to work their way up. And if they don't succeed in the subdivisions, everyone goes, well, we told you you couldn't do it. But then when you get an ex-white player who manages one of the top teams and he doesn't do well, it's, oh, no, but he doesn't have the experience. Do you see what I mean? There's so there's a, there's a lot of injustice going on, but now people are starting to realise in it. And there's been a lot of reforms in terms of the recruitment in sports, even in journalism for myself. I've been contacted by some, by BBC now. They want to have, they want to sit down and have a talk. So, but I don't want this to be a talking gesture. I don't want them to sit down with me and just be like, yeah, you know, we kind of feel for you. That's why we want, we want to offer you something. No, offer me something because I'm, because I'm good at something, not because you feel sorry for me and you just want to equal the quota of black people and white people within your company. Do you get what I mean? So, that's kind of the climate here. So a lot of things are changing. People are starting to understand more, um, which something I'm very happy about is a lot of white people start to understand their white privilege, which is good, and they're using it in a positive way. But obviously you still have a lot of people who don't understand what's going on. And um, Not that I want to talk too much, but there was a game, um, I think it must have been two weeks ago now, um, two teams were playing Manchester City against Burnley and a plane flew over the stadium uh, with a banner at the, the back of the plane and it was saying White Lives Matter. Mm. And that was something that absolutely shocked, the, obviously, the whole world of football. There was a lot of debates going on on social media. Um, a lot of people actually backing that gesture, which I don't understand. Um, and yeah, there, again, there was a lot of debates going on on TV and on sports channels about this. Um, who, like, there's there's a lot of steps, you know, going towards that plane flying over. And all of the questions that I was asking myself is, how can a person or a few people have this idea? And not, like, nobody in the, all of those steps, nobody paused and said, hold on a minute, this is wrong. So we're starting with the people who had the idea. Let's say it's five people. Nobody of those five people sat down and said, listen, this is wrong. Okay, so you take the next step. You go to the company which makes the banners. Are you telling me nobody in that company sat down for a minute and said, hold on a minute, we're making a banner saying white lives matter. Is this not wrong? Okay, now you're, you're looking at the pilot who's flying the plane. He didn't sit down and say, hold on a minute, this is wrong. So all, in all of these steps, nobody sat down and thought what we're doing is wrong. So this, this, that's why I'm saying there's still a lot of ignorant people who you need to not be rude to or disrespectful, but just sit down with them and explain to them. Like, ultimately, it comes down to education. That's what it is. It comes down to education. Because I've seen a picture going around on social media of um, a black girl. This was in the 1960s. A, a black girl uh, in a cage. She must have been maybe four or five years. That was in Belgium. A black girl in a cage. And there were two white girls outside of the cage feeding her. And the year is, I think it's at 1965 or 68. So I'm like, hold on. 1968 is not that long ago. So this, those two white girls outside of the cage are two grandmothers today. So if they had the, that mentality at the time, they've passed it on to their children and those children have passed it on to their grandchildren who might, be my, who might have my age today. So it's all about education and how you, 
how you communicate things to your children. So, but yeah, regarding the climate at this moment, there's a lot of conversations going on. That's, that's how I would say it. Absolutely. And it's, it's very interesting to see because here, I feel like we've, we've done a lot of what you were saying. So they would say, you know, they would do or say something, or let's say the perpetual one would be like a, a black history month. So things like that, but nothing would ever actually happen. And then, you know, for, because it, it, it becomes normalized, right? Because our brain becomes accustomed to whatever environment that you put it in at the end of yeah. the day. So people just got, they just got used to that and they accepted it. And we all knew that, you know, they weren't trying to do anything else, mm -hmm. but it, it's kind of like the, the scripture, which is that there's wickedness in high places. So you have all those people who think this way with that mentality in these positions in these leadership positions. So when you see those companies and you go to their leadership, that's why no one really looks like us or else things like that couldn't happen. Exactly. exactly. Absolutely. And I agree. I mean, just listening to everything you're saying is not much different from stuff happening here in the States. I mean, you think about coaches, there might be more basketball coaches that are black or have had opportunities to coach. Um, but I would hope that's the case because most of the players are black in, in many instances. So it's a little bit more reflective and NBA mm -hmm. is a little bit more progressive than other sports fields. But when you talk about American football, you talk about National Football League, not nearly enough coaches, um, black coaches, particularly head coaches. They might be at other defensive um, coaches or offensive coordinators, et cetera, but there's never a person who's a head coach, let alone anyone who's in the front office. You talk about general managers, you talk about VPs, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. Let's not even get into the ownership conversation because that's something that's totally different. Even in um, NFL, when we talk about the Rooney rule, where you're supposed to actually um, have a person who's of color, a black person, a person of color, um, as one of your candidates, when you interview for head coaches, that does nothing. So there's a lot of situations, a lot of organizations that are being very performative. And what, what troubles me now is that the world is watching and the world is seeing how things are happening, not only in the United States, but across the world. And there's still folks, particularly even those good white folks who are like, what can I do to show mm -hmm. that I'm a good white person, right? Mm -hmm. Without sacrificing or giving anything up. And they're, they're looking for workshops. They're looking for book clubs. They're looking for everything that's not really going to move the needle towards um, true equality um, mm -hmm. or really making sure that we have equity in order for us to get to that true equality. We can't even have conversations about reparations. We talk about the HR 40 bill that still hasn't even been passed. And it's only a bill that says that we need to form a commission to study um, what would be owed or reparations that would be given out to those who are descendants of slaves. Not to say yeah. that it's going to happen, just to study. And folks don't want that. And that's been happening for 30 years. They've been putting that one. Um, wow. But there are other things that get signed all the time. So when we think about what's really happening and we think about how perversive this culture is, it's not just about racism, right? Because Part of racism, which is not distinct from whiteness, um, mm -hmm. is connected to whiteness. But whiteness, we have to realize that, and we'll get into this a little bit long, a little bit later when we talk about education. Whiteness mm -hmm. is something that is a mindset, it's an attitude, is a mentality. Um, and there's times when people of color can actually suffer from whiteness as well. You don't have Facts. to be a white person to suffer from whiteness. Um, you could be a you could be a person of color who believes that white is right. And you know, black is wrong or black is whack and and everything else in between. So when we're thinking about the climate here. Um, there, there, it, there are people who are awakening and becoming a little bit more conscious. What they're doing with their consciousness, though, is problematic in some spaces. Because like you said, you might hear all these statements, all these pledges, and then you actually go to the board and you see that they haven't made any changes. And then when folks call them out and say, make changes, they say, well, you know what? I don't know if we can do that. Well, well, well you can wait. You can wait. Actually, we'll think about that next cycle. And things just keep getting kicked, kicked, kicked. Um, and I was reading something the other day. It's like the whole tactic is delay until death. 
So when there's things that happen, for example, let's just say someone gets arrested or someone is locked up in prison and there's times when you know this person is innocent, mm-hmm. they will delay, 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 delay until that person's dead. Or they will delay, 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 delay until that person's no longer in office. And that's how politics are. So in America, you know, things are very political. It doesn't even matter if you're in the political sphere in terms of actually being in politics. Corporations, organizations, they all they all do the same thing. So yeah, man, it's interesting. Wow. Absolutely. So one of the things that I've noticed as an American observing sports, so a world football, which is soccer for Americans, mm-hmm. would be the connection that the fans have, the audience, right, with when observing professional sports. So I, I just observed this, this anecdotally that it seems that a lot of these people who have this this need, this desire, this urge to this, you know, disperse vitriol and mm-hmm. hatred and ignorance, they go to professional sports to have a, a release of that. Mm-hmm. So they get to get, they get to get out all their hate. So that's why you have jeering and booing. And I mean, this is something that's been in practice since, you know, the Colosseum with the Romans. So yep. again, n- nothing new under the sun. And then when you really think about it, because this has always confused me because growing up, I played basketball. And then you would, you would hear your own fans, right, who's supposed to be chanting you, saying racist things to the other players on the team. But I'm like, what about the players on our team? And it, there's that disconnect. So it kind of reminded me when the when the Chelsea fans were abusing Raheem Sterling, who was in that in that BBC clip. So Aaron, could you let everyone know essentially the history of racism towards black players in Europe in places like Spain, Italy? Germany, France, and so on, please. Yeah, um, I think it, it happens very often until this day, actually. Um, very recently, there was an incident that happened with uh, the England national soccer team, and they went to play against uh, Bulgaria. Um, and this is something that really, really upset me because um, the FIFA, which is the, the world governing body of, of soccer, uh, and the UEFA, which is the European governing body of soccer, put in a uh, three-step protocol in place that they call it. Um, I think where when you get racially abused on, on the field, the first step is to let the referee know, I think. Uh, the second step is they stop the game and then they consult with the two coaches whether or not they should you know, stop the game completely or carry on. And then if it happens a third time, then they stop the game completely. Um, and then the team you know, that racially abuses the other team then gets fined or something like that. So when that happened, I sat down again and I thought, this is wrong because why should a team that has black players or dark, you know, uh, dark skin players, let's say, or people of color in their team, why should they let themselves be abused three times before something happens? And I compared this to, to my job because I, I work in a normal office besides doing YouTube. And I compared this to my job. I said, imagine if I go to my job, I'm sitting at my desk, just doing my work, and a white person comes to abuse me. Are you, do you really think I'm going to let this person do it three times before I go, okay, I'm going to go to my manager now and, and say something? Do you know what I mean? It's, from the first time, I'm going to react and go to my manager and report this. So why do we let our black players be abused three times? Why do, do they have to get abused three times before something happens? So already there there is a there is a level of disrespect i think black players are not respected enough and 
I'm not blaming the black players, but or black athletes, but something has to be something significant has to be done. And the most logical thing to, to do for me is to just walk off the field. If you get racially abused and you, you, you can't take it and it's, you feel some type of way and it hurts you, just walk off the field. And it has happened where black athletes, there were incidents where black athletes want to walk off the, the, the field and just go in and not play anymore. But then the white players of that same team all of a sudden go, no, uh, this is what they use all of a sudden. Most of the time, this is what they use. They say, don't let it get to your head. Don't pay attention mm. to it. Keep playing. And I'm like, I understand your point of view because you're my teammate. I understand. But you don't know what it feels like. So you can't tell me to just ignore it because this is, this is racial abuse is, is, there is no good to that. It's bad. It's, it's not good. It's wrong. So you telling me that I just have to ignore it and just carry on playing is, is wrong. It's just completely wrong. But to answer your, your question, Josh, um, racism has been not just, it's not just been going on in Italy or in Spain, where we see the most uh, racial incidents, but it's also been going on in Germany, in, um, in England here. It's less in France than in, in, in Belgium, uh, but it, still ha it does still happen. I think it's just all down to, again, education. Because like you just gave the example, you know, I might be playing in a team where there's maybe two black players um, and another black player gets racially abused by our own fans. But then I'm like, hold on a minute, I play in your team too. So why, what's going on? And again, it's, it's down to education. And again, I feel like there's not being done. There's not enough being done. There's not enough sanctions being taken when a team or the fans of a team racially abuse a player. I think there's not enough being being done by the UEFA or by the FIFA. The only thing that they do nowadays is just they hand out fines. Uh, they just give out warnings. And when really and truly, you know, it has happened before. In, I think it was in the 70s or the 80s where uh, I can't remember what club it was, what football team. Their fans racially abused a player. And this team was literally banned from competitions. And I think this needs to come back into action where when a player gets racially abused by the fans of a team, of a certain team, ban that team from a certain competition so that they, the fans understand, okay, we have to, have to you know, lay low and just act normal when we go to the stadium. Because I understand you can, you can have frustrations in your daily life and whatnot, but when you go to a stadium, please don't forget that you're not just the only one going to the stadium. There's mothers, there's children, and they look at you. They really look at you. I remember going to a Manchester United game and sitting next to a guy next to me who was... Like, I knew what he wanted to say. I knew exactly what he wanted to say, but he knew that he couldn't say it because I was next to him. It's one of them, do you know what I mean? So, but a few rows behind him, there was a kid just looking at him when he was, he was giving away all these cuss words and just, the kid was literally just looking at him. And ironically, the mum was holding her kid's ears, <laughs> which was funny. So I'm like, there's mothers going to, to games, there's kids going to games and they're going to games to enjoy it. You're going to games to give abuse. So... Something here is wrong. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. There you go. Account accountability is essential for change. So we have to hold people accountable for what they do. Banning them from stadium for me is not enough because certain people get banned from stadium for life when they give out racial abuse. Um, there has to be more than that. There, there has to be a sanction in his daily life as well. Do you know what I mean? If he has to do, I don't know, community service or let him do that so, so that he understands or give him classes by all means. Where, where, some, where there is a teacher who will explain certain things to him about society because certain people just don't know. 
Let's be real. Certain people just don't know. So maybe if a teacher is there to explain it to him, maybe he will or she will understand. So that's that's how I feel about it. Yeah, those are great points. And I would say, you know, just listening to you, I, I feel the same way. I think we have to hold folks accountable and we have to be um, unapologetic with holding people accountable and not be afraid, even though there might be some consequences. Um, far too often do we try to appeal to someone's morality or appeal to um, their heart or appeal to them um, through their head and reason with them. But when that doesn't work, what we need to do, we need to attack folks' pockets because they need to feel it. Um, so economically, if you look at any of the struggles, whether it's in the United States of America, if you look across the globe, when you start to attack someone's economic system, when you start mm -hmm. to take money out of their pocket, when you start to take food off their table, away from their children, their family, their livelihoods, that's when people start to listen. That's when mm -hmm. people start to make changes. Um, so I think that's something that we need to do more of. And, you know, I appreciate the fact that thinking about here in the NBA, right, where they got together and they said, oh, yeah, we're going to allow you to wear some social justice slogans on your jersey. And it's like a word bank. You can choose from of the things that they they agreed on. None of them is really shaking the table, in, in my opinion. I think they're all basic stuff that no one would have an issue with saying. Like people would buy lawn signs and put the same stuff out there. So it's not, it's not really too much crazy going on. But how can we make sure that we're not allowing people to just pander to certain demographics and make them think that change is actually happening um, when it's still business as usual? Um, so how can we make sure that we can encourage and empower and then in certain aspects protect those players who would walk off? Um, how can we make sure that we trust each other and work together so much so that if someone had to like walk off the field and they were hurting for money for whatever reason, we can help fund them and fund yeah. the things that they need so they can feel like they don't have to worry about the money that's being put in their pockets if it's coming from people who disrespect them. So they don't have to be humiliated on the job because, yes, they're professional athletes. They're playing a game, but this is their job. Um, how would you feel, you know, thinking about those people out there who have a job? How would you feel if you were humiliated on your job and you can mm -hmm. just walk, get up and walk away? And sometimes we face that. We might be in certain spaces where we work in education, whether we work in medicine, whether we work in business development, whatever the case may be. There's times where we're faced with that, but we're also faced with a, with a responsibility that we have to make sure that this doesn't happen to someone else. If it happens to us, how can we ensure that it doesn't happen to the next person? How can we ensure it doesn't happen to our grandkids? Uh, and we have to break it. We have to break the cycle and it's holding people accountable, but it's also holding ourselves accountable to make sure that we demand these things. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I do support the fact that the NBA players weren't ready to play immediately because they understood, they understand the game, they understand the system, they understand the mechanism, which is sports is overall a distraction. So they knew that if they were going back to playing and then it's kind of, I equate it to when, when sometimes white people, let's say during slavery times and the slaves were singing and they would be like, oh, look, they're enjoying it, right? They don't have a problem with it. And they would use that same type of logic now and be like, oh, look at all the NBA players. They're all millionaires. They're OK with it. They're, they don't bo they're not bothered about this at all. Mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate that players like Kyrie and everyone were just like, now nah, we're, we're going to use this moment for leverage. We're going to use our platform and we're going to make sure that, as Mick said, as you said, Aaron, that this can't happen again. And if it does, there has to be serious ramifications. You can't just sweep it under the rug because we we've seen that trick since slavery mm -hmm. so yeah. you got to try something new let's actually fix the issue and then we don't have to deal with this ever again because the reality is the amount of talent and ability that our people have around the world is incredible so mm -hmm. imagine if all that 
all that sweat equity was actually put into the economy. Now everyone can pay less taxes and then they get more benefits because the economy is better. But it's it's clear that there's certain people at the top who who simply refuse to allow this to happen, which is very unfortunate. Absolutely. I agree again. Absolutely. So, so just for a bit of context, there's a player named Mario Balotelli, and he had a solution for just this incident, let's say. And his solution is... I challenge you all African football players to put money together with me to leave the racist Europe and build build stadiums in Africa and develop your, our youth. We have money. We can build at least five world-class stadiums in each country and sign a petition that no players will be exported to Europe ever again. Here in Africa, they will play under, under love of their sisters and brothers with no one singing racist chants on the stands against them. We are more talented. We can make our Champions League quality and our league's quality. We have great we have great talent that is never appreciated abroad. And I just think that's you you may have to start, you know, saying these type of things to to make other people realize that it's actually real, that we're not just saying that you know to appease society. Like we actually feel this way. And we have been feeling this way our entire lives. In fact, the, the main reason why most of you are unaware is because we were taught to to suppress those feelings and emotions mm -hmm. to go along and get along and try to progress that way. Because bringing it up simply makes you uncomfortable. But now it's time for you all to get uncomfortable because of the, you know, the state of things right now. Absolutely. And I love this idea from, from Mario. Um, yeah, we need to we need to start. We've been thinking about it a lot and people have been, you know, pitching this idea, but I think it's it's time to really, really get this emotion. Mario came with this brilliant idea. Um, and I'm happy that it came from him because um, you know, especially with what he's been going through in his own personal life, you know, born from two uh from, from his parents in Ghana. Um, you know, they they basically abandoned him. Uh, he then went to Italy, got adopted by, you know, an Italian couple, um, you know, even adopted their name, Balotelli. And he's been dealing with racism his whole life. And I can't even imagine what it was like for him at growing up as a, as a black kid in, in Italy. It must have been, it must have been horrible, horrible. This, this guy's been through so much, you know, which is why sometimes when he does have, or when he did have his, um, attitude problems in teams and bust up with teammates and bust up with coaches it's wrong but you understand because he's been through so much and he's had to endure that game in game out every single time so for him to think that is great because and we can actually do this let's not get this twisted if you take all the black players in europe who earn millions we could actually set this emotion and with the help of the the the, the football governing bodies the uefa the fifa we could actually do this. I think this is this is very possible. And like you said, we wouldn't have to ship out all of our talent from Africa to the European countries or to the MLS. We wouldn't have to, to, to ship them to China, which is 
where everyone goes now because the money is there or Australia. We, we, we would be able to keep all of our talent in Africa, build the talent in Africa and create super teams and super leagues in Africa. So I think that's a brilliant idea. But obviously it would take a lot of time because something like this doesn't just happen overnight. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's we're we're way past having this conversation about being very conscious about what we do with our lives and making sure that if our self-worth is not valued by the people who employ us, then we should go somewhere else and build our own. Um, or at the very least, go to some place that does um, value us and pay us what we're worth. Um, I'm just thinking about even in America, just thinking about you know how now there's a shift of a lot of uh, college recruits who are thinking mm. about, I'm no longer going to division one, like top schools that are name brand household names that have so much money, but they're going to programs at historically black colleges and universities. There's a person who just decommitted uh, from Cincinnati, a football player who's going to HBCU. You have another person who a uh, maker who's going to HBCU who's going to Howard. Um, so you have folks who are now starting to do the things that we've always been talking about, but mm -hmm. in this moment where people are getting a little bit more clarity around their consciousness, and the urgency of the situation that we're in, you know, that's happening. Um, I think it's important for us to really see ourselves and give ourselves enough credits to the point where we can understand, guess what? Even, even with a racist capitalistic society, particularly in America, you know, systemic racism and, you know, just a number of different things that put us down as a people. I'm talking about everybody who belongs to the African diaspora across mm -hmm. the globe. Um, we still, we still can be resilient and still have opportunities and still have money and economic power where we can build our own. We can make that shift from being the laborers to the persons who are actually employing others, building, producing, et cetera. And it might seem scary or because the way racism works, right? Um, it's so systemic to the, and so systematic to the point where you think that you can't do anything because if you try to do something, particularly if it's in your best interest, you're going to be stifled. And we've seen a lot of things happen to our leaders. They've either been killed, they've been silenced, they've been bankrupted, they've been you know, sent to prison or trumped up charges, a number of different things. But mm -hmm. if we start to come together, and that's why I think this is great that we're having a conversation here and having a perspective about what you see um, in Europe, because we don't do this enough. We don't have conversations. We just had one of our uh, high school classmates last Last time we were talking about, he's from Ghana, right? So we're talking about getting perspectives across the globe and, and really getting the identity that we're all in this together. And we have yes. to work with each other in order to make sure that we can secure our liberation. And that doesn't mean that we all have similar struggles in the sense that we're going through the exact same thing. But it does mean that our liberation or fight for liberation is actually interconnected. And the moment we realize that and start to work together, the better we'll be and the quicker things will start to change. So I'm all for like building our own and taking it somewhere else and taking it back to the motherland, take it back to the continent. Let's do that. Let's mm -hmm. definitely do it. NBA, some folks need to get together and start doing that too. I heard there was uh, an initiative um, of certain NBA players. Uh, I think they wanted to do something, build like an NBA league in, in Africa. Um, there's a lot of players that, I can't remember who exactly, but there were a lot of players involved in this. And I thought that was a brilliant idea because I do think even though I don't really watch a lot of NBA, but I do watch some of it. And there's a lot of great African talent in the, AB, in the mm -hmm. NBA currently. And even in the past, I'm thinking of people like Dikembe, who's from my country. Mm -hmm. um, do you know what I mean? There's, there's a lot of African talent in, in, in our continent who, who are in the NBA at the moment and in the past as well. So I think that's a brilliant idea. Not, but I know right now at the moment, they're trying to find talent to bring them to America, but why not create talent and keep them there mm -hmm. to create super leagues as well and 
you know, teams that can rival teams from the NBA. Who knows? Absolutely. Definitely. And I'm, I'm thinking about Giannis right now, right? Yeah, and there you go, Giannis. I mean, he, he essentially has a similar story to one of our favorite players, Aaron Paul Pogba, right? Because I'm yes. thinking about that France World Cup team and how many players from there came from African countries. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of them. I think only the goalkeeper is French. I think apart from him, the rest maybe. Well, I'm talking about the team that were playing on the field because obviously you had players on the bench too. But the players that were playing on the field, I think there was only one or two white players. The rest are, are all from African descent. So it just proves that there's something. Um, one of the famous football coaches here, Jose Mourinho, he said something. He said, I always. He said he's a big advocate of, you know, African players, obviously playing for the European teams. But when it's time to play for countries, he said he's always been a big advocate for those athletes to choose for their native countries. Because if they if some of the players that play for the big European countries now would have chosen for their their, their native African countries or their native countries elsewhere, as he said in during the World Cups, we would have more competition. He said during the World Cups, we would we could actually see an African team go to the final. We could see an Asian team go to the final because right now all we see is the South American teams go to the finals. The European teams go to the finals, but the African and Asian teams never really seem to make it to those latter stages of the competition because there's the the quality is there during the first, in the first games, but when you as you go further and further into the competition and the level gets higher because you start playing higher and better teams, the quality lacks because those European teams actually have the quality of the players that should be playing for their native country. So I think I, I would be a big advocate of that as well. And I've, I was talking about this with my friends uh, a few months ago, and we said, imagine a World Cup where every player plays for his native country. That would make the World Cup so much more competitive than it already than it is at the moment. Because at the moment now, even for the next World Cup 2022, you can already kind of guess who's going to win it because of their qualities. But if all of the players played for their native countries, you wouldn't know who's going to win. And that's what makes the competition even better and even, even more exciting and even more competitive. And it will bring more people to it because, yeah, competitiveness, that's what, that's what gets the people talking. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of that as well. Absolutely, because then I'm thinking about countries and what their strengths are anyway in terms of athleticism. So I'm thinking about a, a nation, a country of Jamaica, right? So shout out to Leon Bailey and everything. So you yep. already know players from that country are going to be very pacey. And how mm -hmm. valuable is that skill set in the modern game? And then to your point, Aaron, I'm thinking about, you know, if we if you really be honest, technically, Giggsy could have played for Jamaica as well as Raheem Sterling. Yep. So could you imagine... The lineage that uh let's say that football iq in jamaica and have that developed with all those skill sets and talents then you're going to have more let's say more uh jamaican players who are going to be in these prominent leagues exactly and i feel like at the moment we should um this is what i would do if i was part of one of the football governing bodies i would try and convince players more to go for their native countries not just to play for their teams but also to make that cultural connection. Because I think it's very important, because there's a lot of players that I know personally as well that have never been back to their native countries. So where do you make that connection? Like, yes, you can say I'm African, but you need to go there and make that connection with the people. 
that, that that are just like you, if you get what I mean. So I would be a big advocate of that, honestly. Mm -hmm. For sure, for sure. So I, I just out of curiosity, because you know, I, I don't really follow football that much. I do, I do dabble in FIFA, you know, I do play a little <laughs> bit. Um, so I'm not really well versed, but from from your perspective, um, what is the major league soccer to you? Is that what is that just like a Fisher Price version of like real football? Um, or is it like an actual competitive um league, so to speak, here in the United States? For a very long time, um, I'm not gonna lie to you, Mick. Um, for a very long time, the MLS for us was a league that players go to when they're close to retirement. That's <laughs> <where they go. laughs> that's, so it's Florida. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because you look at a lot of the players that you know were at the highest level over here in Europe. David Beckham, uh, Ibrahimovic was there recently at LA Galaxy. Uh, Thierry Henry was at the New York Red Bull. Uh, Frank Lampard was at New York FC City. Uh, David Villa, um, Andrea Pirlo, like, they were all close to retirement. So for a very long time for us, the MLS here in Europe was a league where, oh, I'll just go there when I'm close to retirement. But now the MLS is actually starting to get competitive. Like I, well, personally for me, because I, I watch a lot of football, not just in Europe, but around the world, so I can get more of different perspectives. Um, and I see a lot of talent in the MLS. And there's actually... Um, a talented player who came from the MLS, who plays in Germany now. His name is uh, Alfonso Davies. Um, he plays for Canada and he used to play in Vancouver for the White Vancouver Whitecaps. And he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant player. He came over in Europe, took Europe by storm. Everyone is talking about this kid and he's only 19. So oh, the wow. sky's the limit for him. So that proves that the MLS is starting to improve the level. And you can see more. I can honestly see in the next 10 years, We'll see. We'll definitely see more and more players coming from the MLS and make that step over to Europe. Mm. Awesome! Thanks for that. Yeah, it's definitely pretty cool stuff. I'm very excited about it as well. So now we want to move on to our next topic, which is educating the black youth. So, Aaron, from your perspective, as also being a commentator who is of African and black descent. Mm -hmm. When you think about creating content, what are the some of the things that you want to make sure that you you implement to make sure that people who are, let's say kids who are younger and look like, you know, look like you take yeah. away from your content and how they feel about themselves? What I try to make sure is that, you know, the kids that do watch me that look like me can have an idea of, you know, Aaron is doing this so I can do this as well. And I know that, you know, as sports fans, and this is something that I really try to do, as sports fans, we, it's hard to watch sports and not be involved with your emotions and, and, and cuss sometimes. But I try to really take that out because I want them, I want them to understand that it's possible to do that without being disrespectful, without, because you have fans that are really, that say the most outlandish stuff. <laughs> but I want to show those kids that it is possible to do it in the right way, in a respectful way. And um, I just try to be myself as well and, and not try to, how do you say it? Not, not, not try to be someone that I'm not, which is very important in this YouTube thing that we're all doing, the, the content creation. It's very important to stay yourself because you can get lost in the source very easily mm -hmm. by trying to be someone that you're not. And one thing that I, that I have seen very often in life and just, you know, by watching others is 
when you play, when you try to play a role, sometimes you forget the script. Do you see what I mean? So just be yourself and try and, and influence people with your own personality. And just be content with the fact that some people will like it, some people won't, which is fine because you can't please everyone. Absolutely. And I would say that's probably one of the main reasons as to why I well, I would say between 75 and 90 percent uh, don't curse on my content, especially on the podcast, just yeah. just for the same reasons. I have younger cousins and I'll be honest, you know, not all the times the uh, let's say the parent controls will be on. So exactly. there is a there is a possible way, very tangible way that they're going to be exposed to your content. And, you know, just because of the algorithms, YouTube might suggest it as well. Yeah. So for exactly the same reason, there's let's, uh, for lack of better words, there's multiple ways to skin a cat. You can be you can be cool, but also be respectful as well. As, and then they'll be able to make that connection intuitively like, oh, being respectful is cool, especially mm-hmm. when it's done like this. And as we, as we know, kids at that age. They're sponges. So yeah. once we're actually observing something like that, that young man was in the stands besides, you know, having his <laughs> mom's hands over his ears. Actually, my mom used to do the same thing to me whenever there is a, a, a nude scene in the movie. She'd cover my eyes. So, <laughs> yeah. I think we all went through that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So this this things like that. It's just very important to understand that there's a younger crop of talent coming out there, coming up next. And we want to make sure that it's it's laid out for them a lot easier because unfortunately i feel like in our instant society where we have all this instant gratification thinking about now 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 mm-hmm. we're we're not really thinking you know n- we're thinking micro we're not even thinking macro and we're certainly not thinking endowment thinking as sanku would say what would you say mix yeah i agree i would say that platforms such as this one um as well as you know youtube content creators as well as social media platforms are very important and I would liken them to the, I would like them to, liken them to the education system, or at least in the American education system, or just in education in general. I think since the beginning of time, um, whereas you can use education, you can use this platform, you can use social media, you can use content creation, either to liberate or to oppress. Mm-hmm. You have the you have the option. So when like the reason why I got into education is because I felt like I did not like the different. Well, I did not like. Schooling. I loved education once I found out what education really was about acquiring knowledge, but I did not like the schooling piece because the schooling piece felt very oppressive, felt limiting, felt like it was policing my body, my mind, my spirit, my soul, etc. Um, so I wanted to get into education. So in fact, on my blog, the thinking gourd, um, on the thinkinggourd.org, I talk about education for emancipation. So mm-hmm. I'm in education because I want to give people tools to think critically so they can ensure not only their own liberation, their own emancipation, but help others find theirs too. Um, so my whole my whole educational philosophy is anyone can learn, anyone can teach. And I think that education should be a tool for you to free yourself, um, free your mind. And after you free your mind, because a lot of times we think about slavery, right? When you think about all the folks who were enslaved, they were enslaved physically. And then when they were free, they were still enslaved mentally. Exactly. So really thinking about those pieces, right? Um, and you know, I wouldn't be me. Um, so Aaron, I have a bookshelf, right? And I refer to this bookshelf as my Black Power Bookshelf. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I pulled several collect selections off of the bookshelf just to share with the folks, you know. So here goes one, which is the white architects of black education, ideology mm-hmm. and power in America, right? From those time periods. Something's very important. It really talks about how you can use education to the point where folks might develop that whiteness, right? But you can use exactly. education and we have to decolonize our minds, right? Mm-hmm. We know about Carter G. Woodson. 
and Carji Woodson, um, his book, um, The Miseducation of the Negro, and how important that book was, at least for me, and I think for many other people. Here's another book, The Miseducation of Black Children. So that's another book that I have on my bookshelf. Another one that I subscribe to, Hip Hop Ed, right? So think about hip hop pedagogy and using that. A lot of times, hip hop is a tool that, again, like this platform, like social media, mm-hmm. like education, hip hop could be used to liberate or oppress. And we see yeah. that. So, you know, there's a lot of times people condemn hip hop because they say it's glorifying this, that, and the third. I would say not all hip hop, a mm-hmm. lot of hip hop does. Or we even make the argument that that's not hip hop, that's something different because it's selling records. And the yeah. other piece, and the last one I have, is what was gifted to me, right? By my brother in law and my sister in law. But uh, this a is guy really that just I really like, by the way. Yes, yes, yes. So, talking about that real, that real in the sense of how educational systems can be used to oppress, how educational systems can be used to police, how educational systems can be used to condemn people mm-hmm. to a certain fate um, and not really give them opportunity to learn who they are, explore themselves, um, think about what, what future they could have. So, going mm-hmm. back to that endowment thinking piece that Josh just mentioned. Um, not really being able to vision a brighter future for them because we're surrounded by such darkness. And every time we try to think or dream, it gets stifled or shut down. Mm-hmm. So when I think about how we can educate the youth, what you're doing, what we're doing right now, I think is important. Um, but again, everybody, all the content creators out there, they're not all created equal. They're yeah. not. And it's important for us to really think about that and make sure that we can continue to create the content that we have uh, and point people in that direction and then also point them to people who are doing the same thing in terms of liberation. So that's what is really about me for me. For me, it's really about education for emancipation. And that's how we have to that's how we have to target the youth. But we have to get them early too. We can't yeah. wait until they get a certain age. We've lost them by that. Or someone yeah. else has told them or put something inside their mind. So we have to catch them early. I can only agree with you, man. And that last book that you sh- that you showed on the screen, um, Dr. Umar Johnson is some someone that I highly, highly respect. Um, I've never met him, but I keep seeing videos of him that pop up on YouTube and absolutely love the way he thinks. Um, One thing that's really stuck with me is when he said um, that nowadays the educational system, uh, I'm guessing in America as well and in Europe, is a bit, is is completely, it's not benefiting any of us in terms of the black community. I spent 10 years of my life in Belgium and Belgium is actually the country that uh, colonized my native country, uh, the Congo. And in Belgium, uh, in high school, we would learn about King Leopold II, Mm. uh, who actually was the king of Belgium at the time, colonized us and, you know, did cruel things like we would work and uh, we would... um, because we in, in back in the day in Congo we had trees that produced rubber, so we had to produce a certain amount of rubber, and if you didn't produce your uh, normal quota of rubber every day, you would get your hands chopped off. And he would do that to gain mm-hmm. respect, and he would do that to maintain his power and for people to be afraid of him. So in high school we would learn about him, but this is something that annoys me a little bit about myself because at the time I was ignorant and I didn't know about these things, and I just wish that I knew at the time that what I learned about King Leopold at the time is not really benefiting me in any way, shape or form today. Um, I think nowadays we have to teach the kids, not just black kids, but kids in general, we have to start teaching kids what they're going to be using in their daily lives. At some point in high schools, they have to start implementing um, how to teach kids to do their taxes, Mm -hmm. teach kids about, and this another thing that annoys me, I only, I'm 26 today. 
I only found out about credit when I came to the UK four years ago. Before the age of 22, 23, I had never heard of, I'd never heard such a thing of, about credit before, never. Mm. I never knew that you had to build it up, you have to do this, do that, never heard of it. Because in school, we, we, could, we got never taught about credit. It was just the same, you know, the maths that we use, you know, the Pythagoras uh, mm -hmm, theory, mm -hmm. you know, these things that we, not really, we don't really use today. So we have to start teaching young kids some stuff that they're going to be using in their daily lives. That's, that's what I think at the moment. Absolutely. 100% agree. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would say I would have to add to that because most of the most valuable things that I learned were post-academic career. And I was mm -hmm. like, if I was learning this in school, I would be more engaged in school. Right? Absolutely. But once, once we were, let's say... Uh, in charge of our own time because you know school structures your your time and you have certain time management that coincides with the school and the overall system of whatever you know whatever country that you're in mm -hmm. but at the same time once you're in charge of your own time then you get to research what you're actually interested in what you're actually passionate about and it just pulls you in it it, it dr is dr you're drawn to it so imagine if kids were able to do that then about things that they were interested in or learning different con you know concepts a simple yeah. thing like compound interest alone so not only is it relevant mathematically it's also relevant in terms of uh sweat equity yes so in terms of success so the whole concept of compound interest alone would change how many you know different different lives and whatnot mm -hmm. so i agree with you guys completely i definitely think we need to use our abilities to help educate the youth and just just as a fan of you both and your musical ability i would love for you guys to have a song with uh you know like a, a rap song where aaron can sing the hook as well something like that in the future about consciousness and it, it i could would be, love to do that right like, like even imagine imagine an album right in terms of and it actually has like a, a message and things that kids can actually learn so mm -hmm. instead of like what's your junction junction like oh what's What's, what's actual privilege, right? So tangible things that it can actually use that parents can endorse. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, I just think because of the, because our, our societies and Western societies, let's say, uh, you could, I, I guess you could say in most, most developed nations or even, even third world countries, it's predicated around entertainment. Mm -hmm. So if you add that level of entertainment that's giving you that, to quote Aaron, right? That spiritual nourishment, that mental nourishment. Yeah. It's a completely different story, and they're going to perceive themselves differently, mm -hmm. which which is the main part. Because what I think what the the most heartbreaking aspect of white supremacy is the fact that you can see the effect that has on our community. So it tells yeah. tells us that we're less than, and then we're, we we have we're so prone, right? We we don't even hesitate at times sometimes to take each other's lives. So things like that would eliminate completely. And to me, that that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know for me, so I created something called um, Real Rap Ciphers, right? And Real Rap Ciphers is my remix to intergroup dialogue. Um, and Real Rap Ciphers is um, a combination between reality pedagogy and hip hop pedagogy. And what happens is you get folks in a conversation, in a cipher, if you will, discussing mm -hmm. topics. And one of the things that I use to show the difference between um, a lack of culturally responsive pedagogy or teaching and education versus one that actually was infused with culturally responsive pedagogy or teaching um, 
And it was, um, you might be familiar with this, Josh, I'm not sure, but you know, back in the day, there was a couple of things where it's like folks would put certain type of grammar um, lessons to music. And it was, it was very white, it was super white. It was like, Mr. Morton is the subject of my sentence and what the predicate says he does, right? And it was just like this little cartoon of a white man going on um, a bus, he's going to work. They're like, Mr. Morton walks, blah, blah. And then there was actually a hip hop version. I think it was done by Skilo. And it's this dope beat, dope hook. Everything is vibing. And then I played both, right? So I played the first one, the white work, the white version first. I asked folks, I was like, that was dope, right? That was cool. He was like, nah, nah. I was like, so what did you learn about it? Nah, I don't know, really. Played the second one. Folks were vibing, listening. It caught their attention. They remembered it. They were able to sing the hook. Um, and we were able to have a conversation about that. So when we think about education, that's why I really like the book about the white architects of black education. We have to learn how to critically think and think about where this information is coming from. Why are we learning about Pythagoras, right? Why are we learning about the Pythagorean theorem where we could be learning about other things? Why are we not learning about other places and spaces in history, but you keep telling us about this stuff that we really don't need to know. And in fact, a lot of it is wrong. Um, so when we, when we think about education, I, I think that I was having this conversation with myself earlier today, because, you know, as, as Aquarians, you know, we'd be in our head, right? So I was, I was I was having this conversation with myself. I was like, no, you know, maybe this whole coronavirus thing, you know, because a lot of folks are like, oh, are we going back to schools, et cetera, blah, blah. How can we do it? Can we really do it, et cetera? For me, I think it's just an indictment on the educational system and how it needs to be restarted and reset. I don't yes. think we should be sending kids back to schools the way that they've been. I think we need more people to actually homeschool. And if mm -hmm. the folks are not capable of homeschooling, well, maybe they need to homeschool themselves first. And I yep. think we really need to get back to like breaking ourselves from this matrix, from this mold of this is what someone's giving us. Because mm -hmm. for us to give our prized possessions away, which would be our children, to these institutions who don't respect us or reflect us or represent us, that's that's damage. That's criminal in certain in certain uh, respects. So I, I would say that this is probably a moment in time where folks should really think about their educational choices. And I know I'm not saying that everybody has the same choices. I get that. All I'm saying is that the choices that we do have, we should try to explore those a little bit more so and be a little bit more conscious with it because I think I think this is a time of reckoning where we really need to ask ourselves, has the educational system, no matter whether it's United States of America or somewhere else, has it been serving us well? And what have we been getting out of it besides crushing debt in a lot of different spaces? Mm. Absolutely. So... It's just one of those things. I feel like it's always going to be strength in numbers, right? So this the collective amount of talent. If we were able to make, you know, a website and have all these different resources uh, presented in entertainment form, like it, like our own version of Netflix, I think things like that would be incredible and a lot of fun to do. And we'd be able to give a lot of value instantly and also see that value being received. I, th I just think it would be a lot of fun to do. Mm-hmm. So both of you guys are, I would say, hip hop scholars. Were there any rappers that you guys connected with growing up that made you guys start looking at yourself differently, let's say in a, an intellectual self-awareness type of way? Yeah, um, 100%. I would say definitely Nas, um, Pac for sure, um, Biggie in certain spaces, um, thinking about Queen Latifah. Um, MC Light, uh, KRS-One, uh, Public Enemy, Jungle Brothers, 
Um, so I think a number of different tribe called quests. Um, and then the list goes on now a little bit more. So more contemporary, you got Kendrick, you got J. Cole, um, you know, you got some other folks out there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I make this argument all the time because you can, you know how much textbooks cost? Like textbooks, these books that they make you pay in certain, like whether you go to college or whether sometimes in high school, you know, back at boarding school, some of these textbooks, they cost an arm and a leg, man, for real. <laughs> and it's like, first and foremost, you're not really assigning homework out of these textbooks. Second of all, I'm not really going to do the homework per se. Um, so it's like, why are we playing this game? Why, like, we just we just keep giving money to these book companies for books mm. that are not even accurate, right? You got people over here talking about um, slavery was actually a bunch of immigrants who came over here and started to help build America, right? Nonsense stuff that's just foolish. So mm -hmm. you have these these textbooks and stuff like that. Those things could cost anywhere between fifty dollars to like hundred and thirty, maybe even more sometimes. But when you think about the cost of an album. $5, $7, $10, whatever. That can be an education. Talk about dead prez. If you go and listen to dead prez, oh my goodness. Dead prez, they, I, I, I did a whole a whole presentation off of They Schools, the song They School. I did a whole presentation talking about it, uh, about education versus schooling and thinking about the school to prison pipeline, all these things. Listening to their album by itself can be a whole four years of college. And it's like when we think about the power that some of these MCs have, when you think about the power that music has, it's mm -hmm. why it's so profitable. And it's why a lot of people who are not representing the culture or not really care about the culture, except if we're consumers and paying for things, um, are really monopolizing the culture. And you see all these people who are record execs, et cetera, you got them pushing all these different types of products that are not good for us, whether it's lean, drugs, alcohol, all these things. And, and again, it's very catchy. So when you think about how can we, as artists, as creatives, use that and try to help educate folks and get them access to a quality education that won't break their bank and set them up for success. Like, I mean, it's a no brainer for me. But again, because there's a lot of corporate greed, there's a lot of things that get in the way, there's a lot of issues, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who need to decolonize their mind. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's, it's difficult. But man, I, I, I'd settle for an album over a textbook in school any day. I can only agree. Um, obviously, I'm I'm from a younger generation, so but I, I think I was still old enough to listen to Nas. Um, I listened to Nas a lot. Um, obviously, you got the J. Coles, the Kendricks. Um, there's a guy that I really like who doesn't really make too much noise, but then when he does bring something out, it really I really enjoy it. Sahed the Prince. Mm. Um, he brought out a project called um, Black History Month in 2000. And I think it was 20. 2013 or 2014, I can't remember. It's a very good project. I really enjoyed that one. Um, uh, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. Obviously, you do encounter, you know, the, the catchy stuff that you listen to on the radio and stuff. Mm -hmm. You do you do listen to it. Um, but most of the time, I'll, when I'm really at home and got nothing to do, and I just want to sit down and chill out, I will put on, you know, the stuff that makes me think, the stuff that I can take in and, and, and think about for days mm -hmm. and days and I, I like stuff that still makes me think about that same line or that same bar, like weeks later and think, oh, he said this and this means that. You know, I like, I like mm -hmm. things that make me think. So I would, I would definitely go with, with those type of, uh, of artists. I like people that just say meaningful things. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Absolutely. And Trigger here is mm -hmm. speaking here with the miseducation of Lauren Hill. That's, that is an instinct. That's class. the one. Oh, man. <laughs> 
Yeah, that that that's amazing. And I would even say for the a lot of these, let's say conscious rappers, even though they uh, I would say they straddle the line because they do. It is their job. There is prof their profession. They do need to make some income off it. So I get that. I, and I of respect how they, how they navigate that because it is it is difficult to do because there is no unfortunately there is no money in consciousness. As, yeah. as Robin found out, so he went to become a rapper. I mean, an actor. So <laughs> things like that. So I, for me, it's even in their voice. Their voice is different. Mm. So I feel like when you're when you're speaking facts a certain way, your voice just hits differently. Like how yeah. how Malcolm and Martin, their voice hit differently. How when Farrakhan, when he's speaking his truth, Doctor Umar, when he's speaking his truth, the voice just hits differently because you're speaking facts in a very understandable way. But the level of talent that they're doing it in in real time is, is so captivating. So I feel like, unfortunately, kids nowadays don't really have that as much as they did back when uh, hip hop, let's say, had more of its soul. Definitely. I always say um, when uh, I always say when hip hop was at its prime, that's what I say, because I feel like now it's just uh it's it's a business man it's, it's it's not it's a business people are in it for the money and they, they will just say whatever they have to say just to make a quick income and yeah i think but yeah i would agree with you josh that you know hip-hop has lost a lot of its soul and Nas was right when he said that hip-hop was dead yeah yeah i would say that for me I'm, I'm trying to figure out and always look at the difference between artistry and industry right and there's plenty of times when there are so many artists who are dope, just dope, but they're not necessarily going to make it into the industry. Mm. Or you might have some folks who are in the industry who are just dope. They're dope, but they got to cut a song so they could cut a check. You know what I mean? So it's like there's certain spaces like that, but there are times where folks go off. They go off and they do the thing. So it's really important when we think about building, when we think about the spaces that we're in, you know, trying to find and develop different streams of revenue, like having multiple streams of revenue, realizing that in order for us to truly be our full self, sometimes we might have to get in in other spaces in order for us to secure and support us being our full selves at our regular job. Because if they give us the bye-bye, we could be like, we good, I'm leaving, right? Mm -hmm. I just really think about those pieces. But I think there are a lot of young folks coming up. I'm, I'm hopeful that there are some folks who are really going to take hip-hop back to where it was, back to the good old days. I mean, I'm disappointed with New York in some spaces because you know, I'm from Harlem, New York, and there's... There's, there's not too many New York rappers really rocking like that right now. You know, no. I'm waiting for some more to come out. And it's like, where y'all at? You know, I mean, are we just going <laughs> to give away to trap music and just let the South take it? And, you know, no, no disrespect to these other spaces because they're doing their thing. But I mm -hmm. want to see some some real spitters, whether they're conscious or otherwise, come out of New York. And I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that. It ain't going to be me. I'm waiting for that. <laughs> I guess the closest thing you kind of have to that currently would be what young MA maybe. Mm, yeah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, she dope. She dope in her own right. She dope in her own right. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. You know, I'm, all, all our old heads <laughs> is over forty. You like, I, like some of our like my growing up, the goats, is the ones I grew up with, they old man. They, yep. they they AARP right now. They got the <laughs> AARP rappers out there, man. And they only get better with time, right? Because you think about Black Thought, um, you know, who's been doing it for years. The fact that he dropped that 10-minute freestyle. Oh, like, God. Doing it just a, what, like, he's, he's definitely in my top five. So you think about even like an E-40, you know what I mean? Like an E-40. We, we need folks to actually take 
take notes. And I think Black Thoughts are the best. I think I think Black Thoughts are what it was either Black Thought or E40 was like, yo, rap, rap, rapping is like a, a grown man's game. Like, cause once you get in your pocket, you've had that experience. Like Snoop could still spit and he'd be talking that stuff. Black Thought could still spit and he'd been talking that stuff. E40 is one of the dopest, most underrated in some spaces because they can't get with his hyphy, but he's done created so much vocabulary for the block. It's crazy. So when we think about so many things, it's like. Where are these young cats? And some of them are getting there. Some of them are getting there. And I'm hopeful. But yeah, some of this trap music and all this hyphy, like not even hyphy, all this other stuff was just sounds demonic and sounds trippy. And I'm just like, I can't really get with that. Yeah, I, I'm definitely still in tune. Just like Mick said, I'm still in tune with the old heads. Like um, I'm the type of person um, I will get absolutely excited when I hear that one of the old heads will bring out a project. Like I was livid when I heard that uh jada was going to bring out this ignatius project and i'm still i'm still playing this from the beginning till the end every single song because i'm just i'm i can connect to it i can do you know what i mean like i'm i'm i feel myself in every one of those songs so mm -hmm. yeah like and when one of the new one of the new rappers brings out a project it's just you go through it once and then that's it but mm -hmm. it's it's very rare for me to to not go through an album four five times when it's one of the old heads it's just because you feel connected to them and it, because they like you said Mick, they've been doing it for such a long time and they've been so good at, the, at what they do mm -hmm. absolutely and mixed that would actually also be a great let's say concept similar to the black power bookshelf maybe having the black power playlist that, that would mm. be cool too real rap for real for real i like that I like that. I gotta get that going. There's actually you said um you're from Harlem, right? Yeah. There's actually a guy from Harlem that I listen to a lot who's kind of I think he's a mixture of both. He's kind of like old head, but he's also he caters to the new generation. Dave East. I like him a lot. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I absolutely love Dave East. Mm -hmm, I don't, mm -hmm. He is literally the embodiment of both. Yes. And yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for that um, Beloved 2, by the way, with Styles P. I'm waiting for that. Yes, yes, yes. Davies, for, for sure, for sure. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you once again for joining us today. I don't want to keep Aaron too much because it's actually 12, 17 a.m. in England right now. <laughs> So we it's, it's fine. I'm, I'm at home anyway. I'm, I'm still <laughs> I'm still on furlough. We're not getting back to the office until the end of August. Mm. We just had a meeting last week, and oh. they told us that it's, it's not safe yet. So we we actually might be working from home mm. till the end of the year. I'm not joking. That's that's that how probably hard. Be the wildest. That's yeah. how hard it hit us over here. Oof. Uh, well, I hope I hope these Americans over here figure that out and understand that we shouldn't be going <laughs> back to certain places. And I'm looking specifically <laughs> at these schools who are like, yeah, we're gonna do X, Y. All right, okay. You, <laughs> you go ahead. You do that. I personally think schools should shouldn't kids shouldn't be nowhere near school body uh, school school buildings. They should be at home. They should be homeschooled by their parents and not even thinking about. Because what are you going to tell a five or six seven year old to go to school with a mask and think about? I, I mean, it's important to tell them to you know use hand sanitizers and be you know, wash their hands and be uh, uh, hygienic. It's, it's important. Yes, I understand, but they shouldn't be worrying about that, man. They're, they're too young. They're too young for that. So and it's impossible to socially distance kids. It's impossible. They it's like to be next to each other. They they love the you know the physical contact. They love that. They feed off that. They're kids. They need it. But yeah, I've, like I said, I'm I'm at home until the end of August, 
at least so listen josh mick you guys are not disturbing me i'm at home <laughs> after this i'll probably go back because i was listening to um i was listening to one of my favorite kiss albums uh the kiss of death so uh, i'll probably I, I had to stop because i had to come do this with you guys so i'll go back to it when, <laughs> no when doubt. we get off <laughs> no doubt that's amazing. And I'll definitely put you both in contact with one another so we can uh, exactly produce that album. That, that'll that be yes, a lot. Yes, yes. Let's make this happen. <laughs> and perhaps we could uh, prepare for uh, the uh, fall semester or trimester, right? That that'll be That'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. But yes, everyone, thank you for watching. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you go support Aaron. His links are in the description, as is Mikhail's and mine. So once again, Aaron, thank you once again, sir. Thank you guys for having me on. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you, man. All right, guys. Have a good one. You repeat what they created and get power to hate. But worst of all, we disappoint all the greats. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah. Black lives matter. Black lives matter.